welcome to the Keeping the Peace podcast with me, Alexis Powell Howard. In this second series, we're discussing different roles in policing. And today we are considering the force control room and the impacts of the work uh, and the shift work and the answering the, the calls and the impact on the and the people who work in that environment. I'm joined by Tracy Whelan and Mike Gibbs from Humberside Police. Hello, both of you. Hello. Hi. Um, Tracy, do you want to say a bit first about your role and also how long you've been doing the role and, you know, any of that kind of context would be great. Hi, yeah, I'm Tracy Whelan. I've worked in the force control now for 21 years. So I've been here quite a long time. Um, I work on dispatch. I've also done call handling or have done call handling. Um, every day brings something different to the job. Um, immensely stressful um, most days. Um, but yeah, um, it's a challenging job, but a rewarding job. So yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. How about you, Mike? Um, so yeah, I'm Mike Gibbs. Um, I've only worked here no one near 21 years. Tracy doesn't look like she's worked here 21 years. Um, so yeah, I've worked here just over two years now, so still relatively new. Um, I'm down in the opposite end of the building, so we're incidents, so we're, um, we're taking your 101 and your 999 calls directly from members of the public. Um, before this, I've worked in the prison service, worked in the education sector. Um, very much people orientated in in, in what I've ever done and thoroughly enjoying the role at the minute. Fantastic, thank you. You're right, Tracy doesn't look like she's been in for 21 years. Zoom <laughs> 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 filters on, that's what it is. <laughs> Um, thanks for joining me today and coming to talk to me. Um, I know that kind of having a conversation about, you know, the role and the impact it's had on you personally, you know, is it can be can be a bit a bit scary, I guess, just because we're going to be talking about you. But um, so I appreciate you taking the time out and, and coming to do that. Um, so tell me a little bit about how you find the job, because something that when I've done training with the force control room, um, something that really struck me is that you never know what you're actually going to be responding to. Um, you know, when you get that call and just how, how do, how does that impact on each of you? It's different kind of pressures, isn't it? Okay. I mean, just, I mean, people aren't going to probably understand, I think, what goes on in the control room, but a call coming for service and it's picked up by somebody like myself in, in the incident side. So we initially get your 101 call, your non-emergency call, or your incident is prohibition 999 call. Um, like you said, you never know what you're going to get. It could be Doris down the road complaining that a neighbour's moved the bin. Um, or, it, or it could be um, a robbery at knife point in progress. Um, we generate that initial log. Um, we take all the relevant details or try to take all the relevant details and then we pass it through to someone like Tracy who then takes over from there. Yeah, it, it can be. It, it is difficult and some calls are harder. I think we've all got our trigger points. And mm. um, for me, it tends to be either the very young or the elderly. Um, anything that's affecting either the very young or the very old tends to be my trigger points, um, which I find particularly difficult. I know we all have, you know, different things affect people differently. Um, anything in those type of groups is particularly difficult for us. Um, I still live, I still often think about calls that I've taken many, many years ago. I still remember to this day taking a call um, from a lady whose um, young daughter, she's only very young, she was taken off a drive at five years old and um, she was taken to a, a field nearby and she was raped by a man. 
And to this day, I can still hear that mother's voice. It still stays with me. It's still there in my mind. Yeah. It, it'll never go. So in a sense, we've become a victim as well in some respects because we live with a trauma. If we could put our arms around somebody or nurture them or hold their hands, it would be very difficult. It would be very different. But we're at the other end of the phone, the natural thing as a human is to want to hold somebody or, or be able to, to, you know, look after them, whereas you don't feel as though you can do that naturally mm. on the telephone. Uh, we can talk to them, um, but inside you can be really, in the same pain, you, you're feeling that pain, that problem, you just yeah. can't, um, you can't console them. So it's difficult sometimes. And then that call ends, and then it's your next call. Yeah. And then we're dealing with, like you say, somebody arguing over the driver or the parking issues. And it is really difficult because you've then got to still listen to that next call whilst still trying to deal with what's at the back of your mind from that little girl. Yeah. Life will never be the same again. And so it is difficult. Just going back to that, I mean, Tracy said about um, your calls. It's, it's, it's a bizarre job because you've almost got an element of control over the call and what, what you need to do with that and what information you need. But at the same time, you're ultimately powerless because you need to obtain that information. You need to control that call to get what you need to safeguard that person or resolve any particular issue. But at the same time, you're powerless because without kind of that effective communication, we can't assist. And that's sometimes just as hard as telling you that, in the process of overdosing or they're in the process of slipping their own wrist for example because you cannot physically help somebody if you cannot get information from them so it, it's quite a lot of different stresses all wrapped into yeah. into one role it is, it is a very challenging job very challenging it is and whilst all that's happening quite understandably you've got um supervisors or control room sergeants and inspectors that are needing that vital information, which we know why they need that information, but whilst you're trying to speak to a caller, it's, you're trying to build that relationship with a caller and you're constantly trying to sometimes have to interject from what they're telling you to get some really important information that's needed for us to be able to deploy to that incident or to quick send the, uh, the correct response to that incident. So it's really, really difficult. Um, we've taken some, you know, over the years, we've taken some horrendous calls and we don't always get it right. We don't always get it right once the finish of that call. I'd like to think we're getting better. However, it is still practice that, particularly call handlers are taking jobs of a really serious nature, um, but then wrap up that call and then it's beep in their ear and they're then dealing with the next call. They're not having that time to process quite often that information because I think as humans we need to be able to process that information deal with that information before we can then move on and deal with the next matter but because it's all as with most control rooms it's all about the next call really and then it, you know the next person to speak to isn't it yeah um which I do think we do miss I do think we still we do still miss the control room I mean I've taken it upon myself over the last few years when I've had particularly difficult calls, just to check in on the call handler. I don't think the supervisor's getting a little bit better at that, are they? Yeah, I think so. I think there's been a massive push. I think just in society at the, at the minute, 
there's just like a, a much bigger focus on mental health in general, isn't there? And I think mm. I think you've been neglecting your staff if you fail to kind of reciprocate that in the job as well. Um, so I think by, by no means, I mean, I'd be the first to put my hand up and say I'm not a mental health professional. My supervisor is not a mental health professional, but we do what we can to support each other with with whatever knowledge we've we've got. Because um, it can be a sad place, it can be a very angry place, it can be it can be a happy place. It is it is literally every emotion you can think of, every type of incident you can think of wrapped into mm. a single building, and mm. we're just regular people. At the end of the day, we're not. Yeah, we're not it is. It's very much. It can go from a really relaxed atmosphere, from very very low, very relaxed, to suddenly everybody's yeah. hitting roof pretty much. Yeah. So it can, it literally is. It's peaks and troughs constantly, but yeah. literally it goes from one extreme to another. Yeah. Um, it can only take one job sometimes for the you know the whole room to yeah. to change the atmosphere, yeah. to change the tensions. They're a bit like it's like um, I don't do you know whack a mole the game whack a mole. <laughs> so you'll, there'll be certain keywords that members of staff will say whilst we're on a call. So someone might say he's got a gun, he's got a machete, he's done what, and, and everyone else is a bit like, oh, oh what are they talking yeah, about? Yeah. So, so, so the area like, switched on like satellites and everyone's listening yeah, in. Yeah. Exactly that. So everybody's got their heads popping up over the screen saying, oh, who's got that tasty call? It's interesting. Different reactions going on around the room. And some, I mean, there's quite a few things you've just said there that really I've just kind of been reflecting on that sense of not not knowing, not knowing. And as you said, it could be from call to call and, and that powerlessness you mentioned there, Mike. And, and also, Tracy, you touched there about you kind of going on to the next one. And actually, you're not, you haven't really resolved what's happened in the first you know, one you were just on. And so you, you're constantly kind of skipping aren't you from one thing to another but you're still as you said you're going through those emotional responses as well at the same time as the person that you're speaking to is on on the phone because I thinking from a trauma perspective that when you described Tracy that you know still being able to hear that that mum and her you know her voice um it, it's very much almost like on a, a record isn't it it's like your brain's recorded that and and can replay it whenever you know whenever whenever you're triggered to um, and I suppose that's something that audibly you're potentially kind of recording quite a lot of things that, that have happened over the you know over the time that you've done the job. It is it's hard because I guess we never really get closure because all where do you, if it was a police officer I went out out there you kind of see that job through to a certain extent you know you'd see the child got medical treatment needed the mother got the sport needed all those things along the line but where all the time sort of we don't get closure we literally it finishes where the call ends and that's it for us we never really find out anything more beyond that how you know things have progressed along from you know that instant being reported so kind of where I suppose we'll never see the end of anything we'll just get the you know we deal with the the trauma at the beginning and then like kind of with it, I guess mm. um and that's as much as we ever find yeah. out, really. There's so. no, there's no time to process that. Yeah. Um, I mean, like we said at the beginning, Tracy's job's a lot, a lot different to, to mine. But at the same time, they're equally as busy, and mm. equally they don't allow you that downtime to, to process what you've, what you've just had to deal with. Um, like for example, I've, it was, I remember it very well. It was my last call of the day. I think it was on a fourth wash, so four pm start, four am finish, and it was my last call. It came into me probably about ten to four time. Um, and it was this young girl, absolutely distressed, bless her. 
um, saying that she wanted to, to end her own life effectively. So I, I tried to obviously engage with her, what she name and what's, what's brought you to, to feeling this way this morning. Um, and I managed to obtain the fact she was actually on um, on railway lines as I was speaking to her. Um, last call of the day due to clock off and the call ended with the sound of a train. Mm. Um, there was no response, so the train had gone. You could hear it on the line, so unbelievably loud. Um, I can't remember her name. We'll say it was Laura, for example. And I tried multiple times to kind of rouse a response from her. Bear in mind, it's four o'clock in the morning. My eyes were tired. My brain was tired. And I'm there going, Laura, Laura. And there's no response. And obviously, there's one. There's only one thing that runs through your mind at that point in time, um, that this girl's gone under a train. And then, to put it into perspective, I finished the call, say, 20 past four in the morning. I was then packing my bags going home. There was no downtime, no time to process it. It was a case of me going home, getting my jimmies on and going straight to bed, having my last call being someone potentially hit, hit by a train. Um, but support is, is, is good in this place. Um, my supervisor texted me when, when I got home and he said, get yourself home, get your head down. I'll text you in the morning with, with almost like an outcome of, of what's going Because it was my rest days after that as well. Yeah. So I had a period of four rest days after potentially not knowing what's happened to this girl, me thinking, could I have done a bit more? Could I have said anything differently? Did I make any mistakes? Did, did I mess up there? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's sad, really, because... It is, because I think you've always got the... What if I just got that love passed through quicker? What if I dispatched that job quicker? What if I'd... You do t- kind of take some of the guilt and some of the responsibility yourself mm-hmm. personally, which we know it isn't that way. Um, where not one of us working now in our room or a team and we work very much as part of the team but we do tend to shoulder a lot of the burden yeah. ourselves we do take things very very personally um and it's not necessarily how quick mike takes the call it could be then how quick i as a dispatcher dispatch that patrol then how how quickly the patrol gets down to that mm. incident so there's a whole process but we can't help but take shoulder that responsibility and blame individually which we know is silly but we can't help it because that's the people we are and I guess that's why we do the job we do. You're listening to the Keeping the Peace podcast produced in collaboration between Oscar Kilo, the National Police Wellbeing Service and Fortis Therapy and Training. There's a rational element of knowing that but it doesn't stop the emotionally feeling that questioning does it of you know, if I if could I've done this differently, what what if? And I think, you know, I know we've mentioned on the podcast before about what if, but those two words can be massively powerful in taking you down a, a rabbit hole of self-doubt and and worry and and I guess not having that that conclusion at the time. And and like you said about Mike, about you know, if you're having rest days as well and you you that's still going round and round potentially. I guess it's how you manage to transition from something like that you know which I think would you know most people would struggle with into everyday life and going home and being with family and like you say putting your jammies on and going to bed it's like it's quite a it's a bizarre it's a bizarre scenario when you put it like that yeah it is and I think that's why because I, I remember going home and it, it, I don't mean to sound kind of like we don't care or we're not kind of empathetic or sympathetic towards our callers, but you almost develop kind of like a hard skin doing the job. Um, and it's not that we don't care because 
you wouldn't be doing this job if you didn't care. No, nobody, nobody wants to put up with some of the stuff we put up with um, if, if they didn't want to. Um, but you have to develop that hard skin. Um, Self-preservation, I think. It is. To, it becomes, in some respects, majority of what we do, I do think it's kind of, it's not real. Mm. It's those triggers, like I was talking about at the beginning, those things that are trigger to you um, that tend to ch make it change from that, it's not a real scenario. It's kind of something that's happening, but we don't become too involved to suddenly we do. And I think it's the majority of the stuff we can filter out. We have to filter out um, to leave enough space for those that we really need. Um, it's right, I can't, I can't explain it. It's kind of, we need, if we're worried about everything that we're dealt with, yeah. we, we won't last more than a day in here, would we? Because everybody's trouble can't take everybody's troubles on. No. Um, so I do think there's a, a sense of self-preservation that we are able to filter out a lot of what we deal with. I think so. And I think the, the job, it gives you almost like a bit of a, a sixth sense. You, you know what it affects, like you're talking to somebody, really, what, what your call is actually going to be like. Mm. Um, and there's some callers where you really develop almost like an instant emotional connection with in terms of what they're saying. You can tell just sometimes by the tone of the voice that, actually this is the first person and the first person that they're disclosing all this horrific historic abuse to and you can hear in their voice almost like the relief the number of times you've had um, male or female victims of domestic violence for example um, start crying on the phone purely because of the relief and how good it feels to tell somebody that they've put up with 15 years of violence and an emotional control it's it's those calls that get made. You said about your youngsters. And yeah, your, and absolutely. I mean, I have spoken to somebody who had taken himself to the Humber Bridge. He was stood on the Humber Bridge. He told me who he was, where he was. And I knew that if I had a, a patrol stood on the Humber Bridge, I couldn't have saved him. His mm. intent was to end his life. He was literally, that was his last call. I was the last person he spoke to. He then jumped off the bridge and he ended his life. I knew that that was that. In some respects, that is easier to deal with than some of the other jobs that I have dealt with. Although I sometimes do have in the back of my mind, I was the last person that that man spoke to before he ended his life. Mm -hmm. I know that I couldn't do anything to change that. If that a patrol stood next to him, it wouldn't have changed that and it was his intent you do you do take things home and you do worry about things you do you do worry about the family you do think about the families it is a difficult job yeah i think i don't think you'd be human if you didn't take they say don't the day one of the job don't don't take there's so much traumatic stuff to deal with don't don't take any of it home mm. but we're human we're, we're emotional when I think deep down there's, there's an element in everybody that, that cares about other people. I think um, from a control room point of view as well, as a, a patrol officer, you may go to five, six, seven jobs in a day. These guys are taking... 30, 40. 50, maybe calls yeah. a day. Yeah. So that constant trauma, not all of them are going to be traumatic, no. but a high proportion of them, particularly on leaving shift, they're going to be traumatic calls. So... I guess we are carrying more of a burden. Yeah. You know, it can be challenging. People can be 
group. They can be horrible. They can be personal. They can be everything, can't they? <laughs> yeah, they can. They can yeah. be very rude. But they want to yeah. It's like, I don't know if we're allowed to swear on here, but yeah. I mean, um, you get certain members of staff who seem to be your poo-poo magnets, we'll call them, and they always seem to get the horrific calls. They'll have a day yeah. where they'll come in for a 12-hour shift and every single call they get has an element of kind of trauma to it. Yeah. And they, they, they must go home. I've, luckily, I haven't been one. Um, but I think some people must go home some days and think, what am I doing? Like, what am I putting up with? Mm. I don't think there is an element of, of how you speak to people as well. I do think some people have got more empathy than others. And I think you get that in all walks of life. Um, some of us are better at doing it than others. Um, I do think we all go through stages throughout a working day where we become tired as well. Um, and that, you know, we try not to be, but it does pass on. We do pass that on that actually we're getting tired. We're, yeah. we're you know, fatigued by it all. Yeah. And it might be, you know, to them, it's their first call to us. It's our hundredth call and we're yeah. still listening to more and more of it. And we're taking on the way out of the world. And The trick The trick is to mask your yarn. That's, yeah. that's the trick of it. To mask the An essential the skill. <laughs> It's one of the skills you need to hide your yarn on the high the yeah. fact you've got a mouthful of Maltesers. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of sugar goes down yeah. in there. But, uh, but it, it does, Tracy, like, it comes back down to the fact we are just people. Yeah. We are people put into a role where we needed to be everybody. We needed to be a parent. We need to, needed to be a solicitor. We needed to be the police officer, a doctor. Um, you name it, I've had a call whereby a mum rang me absolute bits saying two two young girls, I think they were maybe 13, 14, um, had just come home after being given some unknown substances by, by an unknown male. On the call, taking all these details, I said, get somebody to ring an ambulance. Whilst I'm talking to mum, both the girls pass out unconscious on the floor, mm. one of them starts breathing, and suddenly me, from a policing point of view, need to put the drugs aside, need to put all that policing mentality side, and now I need to be a doctor. I need to be giving mum this advice to save daughter's life. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the calls they use downstairs in training mm -hmm. now. And, and I, I had a twitchy bum all on that call. Um, mm -hmm. It was it was unbelievably scary. Um, but it doesn't come across on the call. You listen to the call back, and you sound like you know exactly. You sound really calm. <laughs> yeah, and really, I was thinking I have no medical experience. I can put a plaster on, but. Yeah. But that's that's about it, and that's how quickly your job can change from from one minute you're a police officer, the next year you're having to be a paramedic. And that's so important for the person on the other end of the phone, isn't it? That that, that you do because that calmness. So you know, you if you started to get kind of say, well, I don't know, I've, I haven't got any medical training, I've no idea. That you're having to kind of suppress all those responses and reactions in order to be able to keep the other person calm. It's it's actually. A huge responsibility that because because you're on the phone, the person who's called is expecting that you will know all of that and can help because that's just why they call that number, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, people bring up thinking that we're police officers yeah. as well, and the number of times you have to say, "Oh, don't call me police officer, don't call me sir," I'm I'm, I'm Mike. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I could live next door to you. I'm nobody special. So you are special. Special. Having discussed all of that and, and explained how this role can, you know, kind of be a roller coaster ride, I guess, emotionally and um, in terms of your, you know, not knowing kind of what you're going to receive when you pick up the phone and what you're going to have to deal with when you, you know, when you're dispatching as well. How do you kind of keep yourselves well? Because you talked there about 
you know, that shell and, and, you know, self-preservation. And I was thinking protection, you know, just sometimes you've got to be able to bounce, think, let things bounce off however they are really to protect yourself, haven't you? And keep yourself kind of steady. What else do you do? How else do you kind of help yourselves to, to manage that trauma and, and keep, keep yourselves well in the midst of all of that? Dark humour. Dark humour. There's a lot of dark humour. Um, if you don't laugh, you cry. That's what I say. Laughter is, is brilliant medicine, isn't it? Yeah. We do always try and then shifts on a high can. Mm. We always try and have, you know, bring some humour into the shift whenever possible. Yeah. Um, I think majority of us have got friendships within teams. Yeah. So I do think offloading with like-minded people people in another job is really really you know useful um it almost becomes like a i don't know about you guys but down in incident because you work typically a 12-hour shift with the same people every shift for four days in a row it's almost like a home away from home yeah. you you no longer become colleagues like on, on, on my shift in particular you let's say we've got um a group of maybe say 15 contact officers or whatever it is um i know full well i can walk into that room on a shift and it doesn't matter who i'm sat with where i'm sat there are no clicks um you've almost you're forced to kind of build that that bond out you with, with your colleague you, you put in an environment where you've got no other choice but to get on with your colleagues um and i think that helps as well because you know full well no matter who you're sat with or whoever's on shift you've always got somebody to have a laugh with somebody to say do you know what? I don't feel great after that call. Do you mind just letting the supervisor know? Or... I think we're very good at propping each other up, really. We all go through highs and lows. Thankfully, we tend to go at different times. Mm. So I think we go through stages where, you know, we're supporting each other, really. Um, so we're very good at, at noticing when one of our colleagues is yeah. not, because we know each other so well, we're able to identify, I think, when we're not well. Or we're not coping particularly well, and it's kind of looking after each other. Really, I yeah. think we do have some of that mentality where we do look after each yeah. other. You are right because you yeah. think about it: twenty-four hours in a day, you work a twelve-hour shift for somebody. Mm. You've got eight hours sleep if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah. That only leaves four hours a day to spend time with your own family and friends. Yeah. Um, so, like Tracy said, you you work becomes your home at times. It does. It does. And um, you do support each other. Yeah, we do. We are like a family, you know very odd family it sounds about all different personalities on the shift and we've got a whole you know range of people everybody's got different ways of dealing with things and it's knowing how those people you know we can have the loudest person on the shift but that doesn't mean to say that the, you know they're always coping and it's knowing when they're but we know when um, they're not well as well because the you know the they do change and you, and you can stop that and we do look after each other and it's really supervisor as well yeah yeah it's it's a really key part isn't it of no of doing a job like this that you do know each other well enough to be able to first of all check in with each other but also recognize those signs of starting to struggle or maybe feeling, you know, some of that fatigue you were talking about and you know just being able to pick each other up and I think the dark humor can be it can be really helpful because it lifts everybody, but it can also hide a lot as well if you're not careful. You've got to get the balance right, haven't you? Because sometimes it can almost be masking what's going on um, for people as well. Yeah, I think that's why it's important to be honest, isn't it? Because if you can't be honest with yourself, like 
I'm, I'm one for dashing roles. I worked in the prison service, so you can imagine some of the stuff I've put up with there. Um, and again, dark humour is, is a massive, massive kind of, not only a distraction, I suppose, but also, like, like I said earlier, if you don't laugh, cry. Um, mm. And it's a good way to, if you tend something negative and try and put a positive spin on a negative, it almost becomes a little bit more bearable. Um, I don't think me personally, I don't think it's a way of ignoring what's gone on or, or potentially masking it i think for me it's probably just another way of processing it processing mm. it with a bit more of a positive spin on it if that if that makes sense mm. yeah it's coping mechanism isn't it and, and you know it's what part of what what happens within the team to be able to cope and manage what's coming in how for, for both of you have you had times when you've kind of struggled yourselves as individuals and um is that related to the job or is that related to things that have happened outside of the job Myself, I've had, um, I have had incidents um, going back to January last year. My son was quite unwell. I've got an adult son that was struggling with his own mental health. Um, and um, he was very unwell within part of, well, the latter part of um, 2019 into 2020. Um, when I found it particularly difficult to come into work because every time I was on shift, I was always concerned that if there was a job in relation to a suicidal male or a job in relation to the Humphrey Ridge, my son might be that person that's there. Mm -hmm. That was really, really difficult. Um, I tried to keep going for quite some time, um, but in just last year, I had to take a little bit of time off work um, to give myself opportunity to process and to deal with what I was dealing with. Because I think we all carry around guilt of, as a mum, why is my son like that? What, what's, why can't I make his life, you know, why can't I put everything right for him? I've always made, with your children, you're always able to, you know, when they're younger, you put plaster on the knee or give them some calcul to make them feel better. But obviously it's when they become adults, you lose that control. And that control thing for me was really, really difficult. Um, I couldn't help but take responsibility. Um, thankfully, we're on the mend now, but it took me a little while um, to be able to step away and just move away from the situation, really, because every for 12 hours sitting and thinking that next call could be a call in relation to one of my own was quite difficult for me, which I think is very similar for you, isn't it, Mike? Yeah, I mean, that, that must be quite hard, then, thinking, yeah. thinking that it could be your own son on the end of the... On the end of the call, that's quite sad. But it's like you said about like your physical aspect, putting the plaster on it, or yeah. taking your child to doctors. Like mental health, like the hidden illness. Yeah. It's there's nothing physically you can do yeah. other than be patient with somebody with with a sort of mental health problem. Yeah. Um, mine's mine's a little bit more kind of personal. It was it, it was well, it was maybe about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. Now I suffered quite a quite a bad breakdown actually. Um, had had intentions of taking my own life um and up until that moment i i almost thought having suicidal thoughts from 14 15 years of age was a was a normal thing i thought everybody everybody had suicidal thoughts at some point like there'll be times where i'd be driving my car and just thought how lovely would it be just to swerve into an oncoming car with no kind of that's horrible because i had no kind of regard for the person in that car Mm. Like that, that girl who I spoke to on the train line probably had no regard for the driver of that train. 
Mm. You don't have that because the, the, men, the mental health, it almost wraps you up in this, this dark bubble that you cannot see out of. It's almost like being in, in the middle of a tornado. It's, it, it's, it's a bizarre one. Um, so yeah, up until, up until my breakdown, maybe like a year or so ago, I, I didn't understand it. I just thought suicidal thoughts and intentions were normal. Um, and I think everything was, was kind of escalated following um, the birth of my, my little girl. Um, so she's three now. Um, absolutely love her to bits. Um, all I've ever wanted um, was a family. I mean, my upbringing was absolutely spot on. I had no tra- trauma in, in upbringing, no childhood concerns, no issues, nothing. There was no kind of trigger for me that set off that kind of mental decline. Um, so what should have been the happiest time of my life suddenly became the trigger of, of an even steeper decline in terms of mental health. Um, the partner, the Mrs. Blesser, went through quite a quite a stressful and traumatic childbirth. Um, Labour wasn't particularly pleasant. Um, and for a man to witness that in a time what should have been where I was my happiest, mm-hmm. to see the physical trauma and the mental trauma the partner had gone through, it it overwhelmed me almost like, like I described it earlier, like a bit of a guilt. Like it, it almost felt like I was responsible for that pain and that trauma the partner had gone through. Um, and I think to some extent that's kind of almost transitioned into me as a parent as well. That there are days that I find it difficult to even, um, I wouldn't say acknowledge the daughter, but to an extent make an active effort with her. Um, I know exactly what it takes to be a good parent. I know exactly what it takes to be a caring parent. I've worked in school, so I know what it takes to be somebody who promotes the academic progress of a child. But I find myself unable to transition that and put that in place for my own daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something hard to understand as well, because I don't know why I feel like that. There are days where I don't engage with my daughter unless it's asking her what she wants for her lunch. Um, and that's hard to process as a parent. It's like, I know what I should be doing, but I don't have the motivation or the energy to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to wrap my head around. You think, why am I not doing that? Am I a bad person? Am I a bad parent? Do I deserve this child? Do I deserve the, the luxury of, of being a parent? And, and that's hard as well, because if you don't accept the fact that, all right, I've got my issues and I may not be the happiest parent in the world all of the time, but if you don't give yourself a bit of leeway you're going to wrap yourself up in that vicious cycle and you're going to find yourself neglecting yourself and neglecting your family and that's when it's going to spiral out of control and, and you will risk kind of escalating and losing more than you, than you deserve to I think. Mm. It's so hard isn't it and both of, thank you ever so much for sharing that both of you because I know that's incredibly personal and I really appreciate you talking about it because that's kind of what we're doing these podcasts for really is to, to help people to know that you know, everyone has something that has happened or is happening. And, and you know, like you just said there, actually looking after yourself and, and not letting things spiral, which is hard, isn't it? If you're already spiraling, it's really hard to bring yourself back from that. But to recognise that, you know, some of these conflicted feelings and also, you know, what maybe what, you know, society expects us to be as a parent or, you know, um, and how helpless we can feel as a parent if we don't know what to do, if we don't know why we feel the way we feel or why our child is responding or reacting the way they are. Or, you know, there's all these kind of, I suppose, internal expectations that we might have about ourselves that we should know and that we do know. And so why aren't, why isn't this working or why don't I know in this situation? And incredibly difficult. spend so much time looking after everybody else. 
at work, you know, we spend all these hours looking after everybody else and yet we can't seem to look after those yeah. closest to us. Yeah. Um, and it feels difficult sometimes, you know, that we're in that position, you know, we can do this at work, but at home, we're actually yeah. struggling just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. You know, just like those callers on the end of the line, I don't know what to do. We're like that. We don't know what to do either. We suddenly become that, that child that's, you know, like our callers, somebody that's needing that support and that help. Yeah. We become that person, um, which are probably why we are good at the jobs that we do, because we can relate, we can understand. And, you know, I think when you can relate to somebody, it does make our job a lot easier. And it makes mm. it a lot easier for the caller or for the officer or anybody that's, you know, needing our help. So I do think it's a... It's important as part of what we do as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's part, part of being human, isn't it? I think part of being hum another human on the end of the line. I think that's, you know, people recognizing that. But I don't know that they always do that, you know, it's like they don't see you, they don't visually see you. So, and, and they're kind of, you're there on the end of a phone. And I think sometimes people don't always recognize actually that there is another human being on the end of the phone who's, who's empathizing, but has their own human life going on as well. You know, it's, reality quite thankless as well because you know whoever kind of you know the officers go down they do the job and they'll be the ones that will get thanks for the quick response or for dealing with something and i guess for us guys at the beginning of the chain we can't like you say it's kind of we've not done anything isn't it you know you'll quite often see you know thanks from mrs miggins for whatever attending a burglary or whatever you'll always go to the police officer that's been down there and dealt with it not to make that fingers have been on fire to get you know the lot created and myself to get a patrol down there but it's always the yeah. police officer so it kind of just feels quite thankless you know there's no thanks really yeah i mean that that links in i remember reading something um not too long ago um i mean because we, we don't do the job for the facts yeah, i mean yeah. there's an element of reward in helping yeah. somebody anyway it does it gives you that feel good factor yeah. um but i remember reading something not long ago whereby because like, i'm all for positivity and praise and like i think if somebody's done a good job they need to be told they've done a, done a good job if somebody's messed up there's a way about telling them they've messed up i'm, I'm always trying to put a positive spin on things um I think when it comes to mental health or problems, there's one thing that really stood out for me was that if, if everything in life and everything in your workplace goes swimmingly, it requires no kind of additional thought process. You're, you're almost content physically, you're content emotionally, you're content mentally. When, when there's an issue or a problem, you start devoting a little bit more time and effort mentally to that issue. And so because you dedicate certain elements of your, your mindset to that issue, that issue is going to have more of an impact and more kind of emphasis on your thought process mm. so it's always the negative things that, that stick with you Definitely. more than it is the positive things so that's that's why i think i'm always trying to put a positive spin on things because i don't want the negative things to, to stick no and i think i think you're totally right mike that you know we the it's the filter we see things through, isn't it? If we, if, and I think if you're looking for the stuff that's gone wrong as well, if you're kind of like gathering that narrative around actually what's gone wrong, there's, there's so much stuff you could add into that. You know, there's so much evidence you could find, but actually there'll also be probably equally amount of stuff that you've done well or that has gone well or that you've responded to well or you've, you know, um, 
you've been you've been good enough for and I think that's the bit that sometimes when we start to go in that spiral you were talking about is because we're we're looking at all those negative things and we're, we're confirming that we're no good and you, you I really like that explanation that you know actually if you if you're looking for it you that becomes your focus whereas actually you start to miss everything else that's around you that's yeah. potentially yeah. positive or you're content with or you're happy with yeah because I'll say to the missus like because of the relationship because I really struggle with the daughter like I said like I'll, I'll frequently say to the missus, in more of hope that she says no, but I'll say to her, are you, are you, are you going to university? Because she's doing a PhD, bless her. She's a smart one. But I said to her, are you going to university today? She's like, yeah. And that almost makes me think, ah, oh, here we go again. I'm home alone with the daughter and I'm going to struggle again. Um, and that's that's really quite sad because it's, it's you, you need that positive confirmation sometimes, don't you? And the, the positive confirmation is so much more important than any sort of negative mm. aspects it's mm. but like you said it's also about being forgiving and nurturing of yourself as well isn't it that you you know yeah we can't be responsible for everything can we i think sometimes we've got to we've got to just accept that we can't solve everybody's problems we can't do everything right we're not perfect um, and I think we, like we were saying earlier, we've painted this, you know, unrealistic world with social mm. media and everything that we do. Um, and life just ain't like that. It never has been like that. And you know, I think we just need to, be, you know, we say it so many times. We just need to be a little bit, you know, forgive ourselves more. We need to be more yeah. kind to ourselves, yeah. really. Yeah. Because yeah. I'll say to her, because obviously my point was going to be that I'll, I'll say to her, "You at home today?" She'll say, "No." Um, and then I'll say, I feel really bad because I, I haven't done anything with her or I haven't made an effort with her. And then she'll, the missus will turn around and she'll say, well, you took her to park. And I'll be like, well, yeah, but that's not much. She said, it's more than some parents do. And you need to focus on the fact, do you know what? You took her to park. Um, you may have been worried that you haven't done much else, mm -hmm. but she's going to remember going to park and having fun at the park with daddy. And... She says that's what you need to focus on, that hour you spent at the park, rather than the six hours you sat in your underpants on the sofa with, <laughs> with a bar of dairy milk. So. Sounds like it's <laughs> <good to me. laughs> Yeah, completely. I, I mean, I think it's been so good to talk to you both. Thank you ever so much for taking part in, in, in this conversation. And I'm hoping that anyone listening will will just kind of recognize actually we are sometimes quite hard on ourselves as well and we set our expectations quite high and sometimes it's about what we do and doing it good enough and well enough and and giving ourselves a bit of a break as well I think that's really important and um, something I just wanted to mention which kind of is relevant to to both um of your the situations you described was around um, the Westerly Club which I know we were speaking about before we started recording the podcast which I just wanted to mention that um, at Fortis, we have a, um, a private uh, mental, uh, Facebook group for men to access support from other men who are in the group. Um, it's called the Westerly Club, and it, it's open to anyone, any guy over the age of 16. Um, there's a few therapists in there from Fortis, but really we're there just to kind of make sure everyone's okay. There's uh, seven ambassadors who are in there who are passionate about men's mental health, and, you know, um, it's open to anyone. So... You know, if you ever, I think the details are on um, Humberside, Humbernet. Um, 
but for anyone listening it's open to anyone and just sometimes really helpful to know that there's somebody else who feels similarly or you know has found a way through or or um can relate um you know to your own personal experiences and also to support other people as well because that's the idea is it's not just about taking it's about giving that support too so thank you both very much for taking the time out to speak to me um I hope everyone's got something from that podcast. There'll be others in the series all related to um, different roles within policing. And we'll see you next time. Thanks very much, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Keeping the Peace podcast. It's available wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you subscribe, you'll be notified of the next episode as soon as it's available. We'd love to hear your feedback and ideas for future podcasts. So please do comment or get in touch on our social media platforms for either Fortis Therapy and Training or Oscar Kilo. 